Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 111, Our Own Worst Enemy. Last time, as March of 1943 wound down, C&C Wavell believed he had found the right balance in dealing with this German-led Axis advance in North Africa. Yes, his men had given up some territory. The Axis now controlled Agabadia after taking Mersa Brega in an attempt to round the corner into Cyrenaica. But still, they held Cyrenaica. And the more land Rommel gobbled up, the more men he would have to leave behind to potentially defend it. In essence, Rommel's successes were weakening the main reason for his success, his number of men. Or so, Wavell thought. And now, Wavell surmised, Rommel was at a fork in the road. Literally. From Agabadia, his current position, the road north led to Benghazi. The road to the northeast led to Antilat. Which would it be? East Africa. Now that the Commonwealth forces had the bit between their teeth, cities and territory held by the Duke of Aosta, in the name of Italy, were falling like bowling pins. Still, the Duke held out as best he could, hoping time was on his side. It was not. The city of Caron, one of the largest urban centers in Eritrea, and the main Italian base of that country, besides the port city of Misawa, fell into Allied hands on March 27th. This only became possible with the piercing of the Dungalas Gorge a few days earlier. The honor of this capture went to the 29th Indian Infantry Brigade. Eritrea was now all but back in the Allies' possession. Asmara, located between Karen and Misawa, but just a bit to the south, was occupied on April 1st. Italian General Fruski, who had been withholding the Dungalas Gorge from the British-led forces, sent some of his men toward Desi, located in eastern Abyssinia about 300 miles south of Asmara, to join the Duke. The rest made for Misawa on the coast. But that, too, was captured on April 8th, as Eritrea was finally wrapped up at long last. As for the Duke of Osta, although he was losing territory, cities, supplies, and men at an alarming rate, he stuck to his original plan, to hold out, to keep a force in the field, while praying for an Axis victory, or at least a diplomatic agreement that heavily favored the Axis. The idea being, all the land around the Duke would revert back to him. But now that Karen, Asmara, Masawa, Harar, Kismayu further south, and Mogadishu to the southeast were lost, the Duke figured he had three possible places to hold up and wait. 
One, the mountainous area of Aba Alagi, located between Asmara and Desi, in northeastern Abyssinia, just outside Eritrea. Two, Gondar, just to the northeast of the Gojim region, itself just above the Abyssinian capital, the same place General Nasi headed with what men he had left after escaping from Colonel Wingate. Or three, Gali Sidamo, in southern Abyssinia, just above Kenya. It was there that General Gazera gathered what men he could to oppose the Allies. In the end, the Duke chose the mountains of Amba Alagi when he fled the Abyssinian capital on April 3rd. With him was his vaunted Africa division. Had he picked the right option that would see the longest extension of his reign? Honestly, that was the Duke's problem. C and C. Wavell had his own. Yet the two were connected. Wavell needed the conflict in East Africa over just as intensely as the Duke needed it to go on. The CNC also needed the Allied fighters of East Africa back in Egypt, post-haste, which meant by ship, which meant by departing from Massawa. Yet the men he needed up north were in or around Addis Ababa, securing the capital. So his needs worked out his plans all by themselves. The road from the capital east to Desi and from there to Masawa had to be cleared. No, the passage had to be free of any trouble if he was going to rush men through it with little thought of security. With that goal in mind, Wavell ordered General Platt to advance south from the north and General Cunningham to move up from the south. These combined thrusts would clear the needed road and finish off the Duke, no matter which of the three areas he was hiding in. On came the two Allied fronts, drawing closer to each other, meanwhile squeezing Aosta, who was kept on the move. And although the Duke held on to hope until the end, that hoped-for reality never materialized. Though the Duke did manage to stretch out his reign, until May 16th. It seems selecting the mountains had been the best choice for all the good it did him and his cause. But by then, the Italians were projecting very little power, and the Duke feared for the lives of all Italians in the areas as the locals were looking forward to some payback. It must be remembered that the oppressive Italians had been there since the mid-1930s but he need not have feared. His European cousins obliged him by agreeing to protect Italian citizens and soldiers in return for his surrender, three days later, on May 19th. Still, there were those Italian commanders that held out even longer, completely on their own. The last one was General Gazera, who made it all the way until July 3rd. North Africa Last time, we saw Lieutenant General Rommel push his way east, if only to see what the Allies would do. He deemed it best to let the adversary show him where the line in the sand was truly drawn, because if it wasn't, they would continue to give ground, thinking surely the Axis weren't going to keep coming. Those two misconceptions dovetailed nicely for the aggressor. 
the corner at Mersa had been turned, which opened the whole of Cyrenaica to Rommel. But surely he wasn't equipped and staffed enough to go after the whole land bulge, was he? He was bluffing, yes. But on came the Rommel-led forces, in both directions. Now Atilat to the northeast and Benghazi to the north were threatened. Yet this had to be a ploy. Which force was the real threat? Which one was the decoy? British General Neem wasn't sure of the answer, but he attempted to change the question. He would bar the inner, more direct route from Rommel. The Axis would have to take the long way around, which would give the Allies time to prepare. And that defensive preparation came in the form of the ailing Lieutenant General Richard O'Connor, the master of Operation Compass. The little terrier dutifully came back from Cairo to take charge. But then O'Connor's retreating personality came to the fore, or perhaps he unwittingly outwitted himself. Once he was walking alongside Wavell, he suggested to his chief that instead of him replacing Neem, something that hardly ever worked in the middle of a retreat, why not allow O'Connor to stay on for a few more days, make some recommendations, but then move back further east and shore up defenses there, just in case this all continued to fall apart. The ultimate goal was, after all, to halt the advance and keep the Axis far away from Egypt. Yes? Let Neem see what he could do. O'Connor would provide the backup safety net. And probably due to all of his success with Operation Compass, Wavell gave in to O'Connor, even though he had called him out here with the express purpose of taking over. And what followed was a sad affair, instead of a coherent defense. Order, counter-order, indignation, conversation, explanation, realization, and then another order, or counter-order. But the most unfortunate part of this sham of a co-command was that O'Connor did not have the time he needed to create a secure wall, a lined in the sand, where the Commonwealth forces could race to and be as safe as circumstances allowed. The backup safety net never materialized. Meanwhile, Rommel was getting excited. Well, as excited as he allowed himself to be. The enemy was falling apart before him, and it wasn't as if he was actually doing all that much to make it happen. Just applying pressure and continuing to show up in front of the other forces just as soon as they stopped to re-establish themselves. It seemed to be doing the trick. This had been the way of things since the fall of El Aguila. Rommel could read the signs just as well as O'Connor had. The British-led forces were giving up too easily, falling back too quickly, leaving way too much valuable equipment behind. These were not the steps of a well-organized condensing of forces. There was fear in the air, panic, and Rommel knew it could do far more damage than bullets or shells. He just had to fan it properly. The reports from the Luftwaffe confirmed for him, whether the Allies knew it or not, that they were abandoning 
Cyrenaica, which begged the question, at least to the mind of Rommel, why limit himself with that? Why let them get away? If he pushed them back, he would just have to fight them later on, further east. Why not take Cyrenaica and the Allied forces before him? Such was his thinking, certainly in terms much larger than Garibaldi could think, or what Berlin was willing to think at the moment. And the how was so obvious. He would reverse the dash that O'Connor's men made just before the Battle of Betafam. He would cut across the open desert, make for Tamimi at the bulge's top right corner, and so cut off many, many Allied forces. Boldness was the order of the day. Ironically, Wavell had hesitated before allowing O'Connor to cut across the desert, because the push to send men to Greece was in the balance. Now, Hitler and the high command were limiting Rommel, because the war with Greece was about to commence. Garibaldi, and it's unclear how much he knew, towed the line that emanated from Berlin. But if this was going to work, Rommel needed to start now, while the enemy was off balance, obviously acting as if there was not just one overall vision for their defense. Yet Rommel did not at this point enjoy that awe-inspiring confidence from his men. They actually considered their orders upon hearing them, and only then jumped to. In the future, that would change. But the Germans and the Allies in-country were nervous and obsessed about their supplies. Also, Rommel didn't have the confidence of those above him. Perhaps those conversations with Hitler rose in his mind, because the Desert Fox had decided it was time to go against his orders. The decision made, Rommel began to move. His thoughts and actions were one. Everyone else simply had to play catch-up. To take Benghazi, Rommel had the 3rd Reconnaissance Unit matched up with the Brescia Division. The man put in charge of this force was Major General Kirchheim, who just happened to be in the area at the time, gathering information. Didn't matter. Rommel put him in charge because of his rank and told him to head north. To make for Makili, about three-fourths of the way between their starting point and Tamimi, his objective. Rommel had Colonel Count Schwerin take command of the Erite Division, supported by German reconnaissance and anti-tank detachments. Their job was to use that ancient desert trail, the Trig El Abd, which was about 50 miles east of Antilla, and make their way north by northwest. Major General Streich would then follow up and strengthen Schwerin, and together they would head for the coast at Tamimi once Mikili was subdued. But Streich replied that he needed at least four days to refuel all of his vehicles, and in doing so was the first to feel the wrath of the Desert Fox. Rommel pounced on him and told him to dump all of his equipment and men into the sand and use every vehicle he had to go back and gather enough fuel to make for Makili. Strike, thus chastened, had all his tanks topped off in 24 hours. Rommel's sense of urgency was starting to spread throughout the ranks. 
As for Rommel's heavy firepower, the 5th Panzer Regiment, for now made up of two Panzer Battalions and towing heavy guns, all under the command of Colonel Oberek, they were to reverse O'Connor's dash across the desert. These tanks would head northeast, make for Antilat, and then for Imsis, about 40 miles more to the northeast. After Imsis, they would turn east and take the winding east-by-northeast road that led to Makili. But their path would have them coming at the target city from the west. If everything worked out according to plan, the Brescia Division and the 3rd Reconnaissance Units, after taking Benghazi, would turn east and secure the coast. Once Derna, just above Tamimi and along the coast, fell, and Makili, to the southwest of Tamimi, was overwhelmed, these combined forces could dash for the target city, where the coastline turned due east again, and all those Allied forces scattered or passed by would be trapped. What's more, Tobruk would only be 60 miles to the east. But things did not go according to plan for the Germans and Italians. Not that it mattered. The Commonwealth forces were mucking up their own positions just fine on their own. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. On April 3rd, it became clear to General Neem that Gambier Perry's communication did not go out or make it to all it needed to in time, once Wavell reversed his decision, which meant the bulk of his forces were near or at Antilat, which meant there were very few on the Via Balbia that led north to Benghazi. Also, the storage dump at El Magran, about 30 miles south of the major city, was threatened as well. Screw-ups happen in war, yelling won't change anything, but for now, this left Neem with only one option for the Northern Theater. Benghazi had to be abandoned. Any supplies that could not be carried away were to be destroyed. The same fate awaited the supplies at El Magran. Those Allied forces that had started out north along the Via Balbia Road destroyed El Magran as ordered, and then, after going north for another ten miles, turned due east to cover one of the two passes along the escarpment that ran north to south from the coast just above Benghazi and stopped just short of Antilat. The second one was further north, just east of Benghazi. All forces now would have to be supplied from Imsis, about 25 miles to the east, which, of course, everyone knew didn't have enough fuel. Not that it mattered, because RAF scouts informed HQ that German panzers were making for Imsis. Clearly, this area was no longer secure, and the forces holding the pass below Benghazi to Imsis were being wasted. 
This Fubaric situation was analyzed by HQ, and Neem now had all forces retire even further north to El Bear, located about 25 miles east of Benghazi and just a bit to the north. In essence, this movement was literally clearing the way for the Axis forces to come up under the defenders and dash for Makili. But of the division that was now to go north to Elber, some of its elements received the order, some did not. So the hectic defense of the north was now degraded to a fragmented one. To make matters worse, and there was no justification I could find, some of the units that had received the orders to head north ignored it. A case in point, the 3rd Armored Brigade stayed in its location along the pass, and would also, on its own, later decide to head for Emsis to deal with the supposed Germans en route there. Which meant that, in the coming days, some reports of enemy movements were really those of Commonwealth forces who were not in direct contact with HQ or any of its subordinates. Thus, the Axis forces seemed more numerous than they were. The Allied forces were not afraid of the Germans, certainly not of the Italians, and were desirous of getting on with it, which partially justifies or explains disregarding the orders to always move back. So, moving forward, the 3rd Armor Brigade made for Emsis on the next day of April 4th, locked and loaded, only to find nothing. Certainly no German troops, yet they found no fuel or supplies either. All had been destroyed when word came of the advancing German forces, which now appeared not to exist. The 3rd Armor Brigade certainly had the fighting spirit. What it didn't have was a fresh supply of fuel. They had burned up much of theirs getting to Insis to deny the attackers the city and their supplies. This forced their hands, as in, the only fuel to be had now was up north at El Bear. Off they went, leaving Emsis open. But the unraveling of the Allied defensive position was just getting started. General Neem, upon hearing that the Germans were at Emsis, they weren't, but soon would be, because no one was there to defend it, put out the order in the early mornings of April 4th that a new defensive line would be drawn between Wadi Kuf and Mikili. Wadi Kuf is located about 35 miles northwest of Mikili. This move basically left everything to the south wide open. It also made Mikili the new linchpin of the Allied defense. To bolster it further, the 3rd Indian Motor Brigade, newly arrived on the scene, would make for the city. They would be joined by the remnants of Gambier Perry's division, now coming east. This new line of defense also meant that all Allied forces to the far west, just east of Benghazi, now needed to make their way east, but in good order. Major General Morshead and his 9th Australian Division were getting fed up with always moving away from where the enemy was reported to be. Still, they followed orders, packed up, and advanced away from the enemy. Then, inexplicably, General Neem, divining something only he could see, decided that the Germans would be satisfied with their advances thus far, and as they were limited in men, 
but most importantly, in fuel and water, they would settle down and regroup, which would give Neem time to do the same. It would have been very nice of the Germans had they chosen to do so. So, around noon of April 4th, Neem countermanded his own order and told the Aussies up north, around Albert and Barche, about 15 miles to the northeast, to return to their original starting point. I'm sure the phrase, palmy bastard, was muttered a few hundred times within the first five minutes of receiving their new order, as the men did an about-face. Yet early that same afternoon, the Aussies holding up the El Rajima Pass, the second pass just east of Benghazi, they had yet to move, were pounced on by the German 3rd Reconnaissance Unit. The boys from down under held their own, but lost 100 men in doing so. This attack was enough for Neem to decide his latest guesstimation was slightly off. So, yes, another order went out for those same men to head back east and make for the line they had just been making for. This time, bloody palmy bastard probably escaped a few thousand lips, but 100 less than a few hours before, as the men about, about faced. Strangely, things weren't going much better for Rommel. It wasn't as if his men had been slaughtering Allied forces right and left. No, what advances the Axis had made materialized because no one was in front of them to issue a challenge. The Australians at the Ur-Rajima Pass had stopped the German 3rd Reconnaissance Unit cold, but that was just the beginning. Count Schwerin had mismanaged his water and fuel and was out of both, before even getting halfway to Makili. He was taking the route just south of Imsis. It was now undefended, yet it was the longer route. Strike's men and vehicles, which were behind Schwerin and supposed to offer support, had been stretched out by the desert road to the point where there was 25 miles between their first and last vehicle. Luckily, Allied units were not around to attack them piecemeal. Also frustrating Rommel was Lieutenant General Ulbrich. His route was to take him to Emsis and then to Makili, but Rommel found out he had not even left Antilat yet with his panzer battalions. Rommel, being an officer and a gentleman, probably settled for burying his face in his hands while moaning, Mein Gott in Himmel. But then he did something Neem didn't. Neem continued to backpedal to allow confusion to overwhelm him, instead of taking the various situations by the hand personally, or, damn his pride, bringing O'Connor in. Rommel, instead, left Kirchheim in charge to push their Italian allies in the north, east against the twirling Australians, while he flew down to Strike's leading force made up of Lieutenant Colonel Ponat's 8th Battalion. Strike's men were still scattered out behind Schwerin. When Rommel was on the ground, he pushed Ponat's 8th, which caught up to Schwerin's group, and together they reached Makili early on April 6th. At last, the linchpin had been reached. Would it hold? Rommel was betting not.
Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Greetings, everyone from Central Virginia. I am so sorry this took so long to get out. Um, between my beach vacation, my son was was uh, graduating from recruit training with the Marines. He's now a Marine Private M.B. Harris. I'm very proud of him. Uh, congratulations, Matthew. So it's been just taking up a lot of time getting him ready and going down there and seeing the graduation and the family day. So Paris Island is really amazing. It's very beautiful if you ever get a chance to go down there. I certainly recommend it. And um, so I really don't have anything to add. I'm just going to thank all my members and people made donations. So if you're just here for the history, feel free to turn off. But if you've made a donation since my last show, which I think, oh, my God, was August 20th, um, I'm going to just thank you real quick. So you can stick around and, and hear that. Um, and of, out of all the people that um, have donated – I certainly want to thank Jeffrey M from Humble, Texas. He made a uh, he made a sizable donation, which came at a perfect time. I had to drive. For those of you who know the the states or the East Coast, I had to drive from my home in Central Virginia to Nags Head Be- Nags Head Beach, and then after five days at the beach, drive from there to tra- to Paris Island in South Carolina, which was an eight hour drive. So. All that um, money that you gave me, Jeffrey, I so appreciate it, and I hope it's okay, but it went in my gas tank because I had um, a whole bunch of driving to do all by myself, and so it just really came in uh, at the right time, and I just want to thank you. So <clears throat> I just – and this is, this is a long list, so I'm just going to go through here and thank everybody, and I certainly hope I don't uh, butcher your name. Let's see. In no particular order, um, Neville H. from Queensland, Australia, he made a donation. Thank you. Peter B. from Melbourne, Australia, made a donation. Thank you. Um, Peter R. from Lake Oswego, Oregon, made a donation. Thank you. W.B. from Surrey, U.K. Um, uh, Brendan B. from New South, New South Wales, Australia, um, donated and bought a mug. So thank you very much. Uh, let's see here. Some of my new members, uh, James W. from Miles, Texas. Um, Tim K. from... Barney Gut, New Jersey. I'm sorry, Tim, for butchering that. Um, Dale T. from Manitoba, Canada. Um, V.A. Squires from Kent, U.K. Mitchell S. from New- Noonan, Georgia. Uh, Douglas B., who actually signed up a couple times for membership. Douglas, I so appreciate the enthusiasm. He's from Pleasanton, California. Matt E., who who now lives in Concord, Massachusetts, but is a local boy. Uh, grew up in Albemarle County, right down the road from me. So good on you, Matt. Um, let's see here. Brenton G. from Newton, New South Wales, Australia. Jim H. from Woodbridge, UK. Um, Daniel O. from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, Benjamin R. from Bankstown, New South Wales, Australia. Alan J. from Lincolnshire, Lincolnshire, Lincolnshire. You know what, Alan? Email me. I don't know how to say it. I apologize. From the UK. Keith D. from Nottingham, uh, UK. Ron H. from Windsor, uh, Wisconsin. J.S. from Baltimore, Maryland, right up the road. Um, let's see here. Jer S. from The Woodlands, Texas. Hartley E. from Trawden in the UK. And Nigel M. from Shropshire, UK. 
I'm again, Shropshire, Shropshire, Shropshire. Just let me know so I can get this right. So thank you to everyone who's donated. I really appreciate it. The next episode will not take as long because I'm back now and I got all my ducks in a row. My son has had 10 days off and now he's going to North Carolina for intensive combat training. And then he'll go to Pensacola, Florida for a year uh, to do his aviation mechanics schooling, whatever it's called. So he's a Marine. Uh, I'm very proud of him. Um, I just can't say enough about him. So um, I will just quit babbling at this point. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, the next time we come back, we'll just go ahead and jump into Greece and all its multi-layered um, confusions. But we'll do it and we'll get started with that and we'll keep up with Rommel as well. Take care, everyone, and may the fates play fair. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.